Hello, everybody. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Welcome again to New Books in Military History. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find interesting and interview the author. This week, we have selected John Grenier, the author of the book, The Far Reaches of Empire, War in Nova Scotia, 1710-1760. Part of the Campaigns and Commanders series from the University of Oklahoma Press, Grenier's book builds upon the framework he constructed in an earlier work, The First Way of War, American War-Making on the Frontier, 1607-1814. There he introduced the idea that a uniquely American way of war evolved in response to the clash of cultures taking place in the New World. Drawing equally from the realities and perceptions of war with Native Americans and the petit guerre, little war, or irregular war, of the European continent. In this book, Nova Scotia serves as a case study for the first way of war. Acquired by Britain after Queen Anne's War, the province was occupied both by French-speaking Acadians and several Native American tribes. Within half a century, however, this population was supplanted by English-speaking settlers, largely from the Massachusetts colony, the original settlers being displaced by war and policy. Grenier's study is thus more than a simple campaign history. Instead, it presents a complex and intriguing account of the negotiations and conflicts between the island's diverse Acadian and Native American population, their English overseers, and the encroaching Yankees from Massachusetts. Grenier offers a fresh take on colonial history and highlighting how a new form of irregular warfare took shape in the New World on the fringe of empire. Hi, John. How about how are you? Good, very good. Everybody, today we're talking with John Grenier about his latest book, The Far Reaches of Empire, War in Nova Scotia, 1710-1760. John is a specialist in warfare in English North America, and he is really best known for his earlier book, The First Way of War, American War Making on the Frontier, 1607-1814. In this more recent book, however, John's attention is drawn to the small and, at the time, more recently acquired English colony at the doorstep to Canada. It is an interesting look at how England's colonial military posture evolved in response to a series of interesting challenges on Nova Scotia, and it would be quite informative to anyone interested personally and professionally in how the British Army experienced and prepared for warfare before the American Revolution. John, would you like to say a few words about yourself and what prompted you to pursue this project? Sure. Um, I went to graduate school at uh, University of Colorado in Boulder, and uh, there I studied uh, early American history under Fred Anderson, one of the uh, the deans, if you will, of early American military history. And um, Fred's influence on me has been has led me to focus on the frontier. So um, that's what led to my first book, The First Way of War, and uh, which has now led to this, this second book. The, the First Way of War was a, was a macro picture, I hoped, um, for, uh, for war on the early American frontier. And in this book, I wanted to, to drill down into a little bit more of a micro picture in a specific province or a specific locality and see if, uh, see if the thesis that I had, uh, I presented in the first way of war um, 
actually applied on a on a local level. So that's that's really the purpose in uh, in choosing Nova Scotia as the place to um, to look for this study. Okay. Well, you know, you mentioned a thesis from the first wave of war and how it's so critical to this book. I mean, would you just restate what that is for our listeners? Right. Um, basically, what I said is that Americans created their first in both times of, in, in terms of um, uh, space and time uh, way of war on the early American frontier from about 1607 to 1814. Yeah. And in that, in, the, in that way of war, it was a focus on enemy non-combatants, enemy agricultural resources, um, basically the irregular side of the European military tradition. And that, of course, is being played out on a larger scale in Nova Scotia, as you're going to discuss in the book itself. You know, I, I think it's safe to say, I mean, from where I'm sitting, um, that as, at least as an Americanist, uh, there's really been very little written on the military history of Nova Scotia. There's basically nothing on it, and um, it's it's pretty much the, the purview of Canadian historians and early Americanists who are Americans um, kind of forget that Nova Scotia was the 14th or 15th colony, basically depending on how you want to look at it, um, whether you want to consider Quebec a colony or not, um, that, that the British developed in mainland North America. So it's, um, yeah, there, there's not a whole lot from an Americanist perspective. It's, it's the Canadian's history. And how do how the Canadians treat it generally? I mean, do they go into as much detail as you do? or? Well, um, this is something I was going to talk about later on in, in our conversation today, but in a sense I, I waded into a, a, a swamp of PC, if you will, um, the Canadians don't like the idea of, generally, I shouldn't say all of them, but many of them don't like the idea of an American using Canadian history for American purposes. Um, they have a view that somehow, as Canadians, they treated their native peoples better than we did south of the 49th parallel, and that somehow their, uh, their military history wasn't as brutal or as sharp or as is focused as American military history. And what I show in this book, I think, or I hope the readers will get, is that um, what's happening in Nova Scotia in 1715-5 is not fundamentally different than what I described was happening in um, South Carolina or on the Pennsylvania frontier or on the New York frontier. Right, right. So it's really showing there's more continuities between the United States and our friends to the north, perhaps in this area than we realized. Most definitely. Yeah. Most yeah. definitely. Yeah, one thing you describe in your introduction, I'm fascinated when you raise it, is the idea of, of your book lining up as part of a new frontier history. You know, I'm, I'm used to hearing the term new military history. We all are in, a, in, our, in our field. But I, I'm interested in what constitutes a new frontier history and how you fit into that. Right. Well, you know, the, the traditional view was that it was the whole uh, – the whole Turnerian, Frederick Jackson Turner argument about the frontiers, the, the pressure valve, the, the, the part of um, the quote-unquote American experience that makes us distinctly American. And the, uh, the new frontier history is to, to look at the frontier and reassess that, whether um, everything good in the American experience comes out of that frontier, 
And I think what you'd find in this book is there are a lot of really unpleasant things that come out of the frontier experience. So it's not to not to be bashing the the previous history, but more but look at the the frontier experience with um, well through a different set of lenses and taking the different considerations, maybe more cultural or more social. Um, perspectives than simply, you know, uh, God-fearing, God-loving white people went out and brought civilization to the frontier. They brought something to the frontier, and I, but I don't know if it all the time was civilization. Right, right. Well, it certainly strikes me as also being much less triumphalist as you're describing it, you know, but also it, in a sense where it restores agency to other actors, correct? Oh, correct, and I, I think that's the key point. Um, you know, as the readers probably already know, if they're they're listening to this, they probably have some interest already in Nova Scotia. Uh, everybody knows about the Acadian removal of 1755, and in the traditional view, and um, what a lot of Canadians will say is that the Acadians were just simple victims, as were the Mi'kmaq and Maliseet Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, what I show in this book is the Acadians; they fought back. They they didn't go passively. Um, and their their um, their participation in the events leading up to the British decision to remove them in 1755 to deport them first to Europe and then to the West Indies and eventually to Louisiana where they became Acadians. I mean, where they became Cajuns. Excuse me. Um, they were not innocent actors in that. They they had a play in that as well. It's just as the the Mi'kmaq had a play in the British decision in 1749 to issue scalp proclamations, uh, to issue excuse me, scalp bounties through a proclamation that promised uh, 10 guineas for every um, Indian scalp that Englishmen brought in. Yeah, and, and that issue there is uh, leading to today um, a huge debate within Hall- in Halifax because the most recently, the Halifax School Board, at the urging of um, Mi'kmaq—I don't know if you call them nationalists or um, Mi'kmaq representatives—has decided to remove the name Cornwallis from Cornwallis Middle School because Governor Edward Cornwallis was the one who issued the proclamation, and these activists are saying there's no reason that they should be honoring someone who issued proclamations for the the murder and scalping of women and children. Oh, fascinating. And, of course, you know, that, as you point out in in earlier works and in this, too, that's, while it's, you know, it's certainly a tragic, from our standards, a brutal act, it was well within keeping of, you know, the direction that irregular warfare was taking at that time. Right. It it was perfectly within the, the acceptable slash normal um, parameters. Right. Um, it doesn't make it right. Um, you know, obviously two rights don't make a wrong and all, all those things, all those banal statements we can throw out, but um, I think that the, the audience in Halifax would be better served if they took a little time to try to understand the history as opposed to, uh, you know, cherry-pick it. But isn't that what every historian writes about, right? Right. Well, I mean, I was going to say that's true just about every community I can think of where sure. people stop and look back at their past. You know, we, we look at, you know, the issues here that we're seeing in your book about the conquest and civilization of, of Nova Scotia. I mean, it's clear we're not just looking at a 
British versus Indian dynamic or British versus Acadian dynamic. There's so many different players who are, who are caught up in this. Are, are there any others who were omitted that we, we generally or have been ignored in this narrative? Well, yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's become compartmentalized because the traditional arguments are there's the Indian-British conflict, there's the Acadian-British conflict, um, there's also tension and struggle between Yankees from New England who view Nova Scotia as a colony of their colony, and the British who are sent there to establish order and bring Nova Scotia into the empire. So there's there's all these fascinating characters floating around and interacting with each other and um, you know working against each other in so many clever ways that you know the French will do one thing and they think they have they think they had the Indians allied with them on a particular move against the British and then the Indians fracture within themselves and some Indians ally themselves with the British and others stake out a position of neutrality and then others tie themselves to the French and it's just this just this mosaic of interests and factions and various leaders trying to bring people together in the face of this tremendous change where the Indians are losing their homelands and their way of life. The Acadians, they don't know whether they should be siding with the French or whether they should be siding with the English or whether they should be neutral. It's just an incredibly confusing time and place. Yeah, it's one we don't really see elsewhere in the English colonies, if you stop and think about it. I mean, it's unique to Nova Scotia, which makes it a fascinating case study, I think. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's so many different people, so many players that, you know, the old expression, you, you can't tell them without a scorecard, right? I mean, it's, um, as I'm researching this, you know, these people keep popping up, and, you know, these French Jesuit missionaries who are out on the frontier who have, quote-unquote, gone native, suddenly these guys are, are popping up leading armies of Indians against English forts in the main backcountry. Right. We'll come back to him in a few moments, because he's a fascinating yeah. character as well. Right, it's like, how did, how did that manage to happen? So, uh, you know, larger-than-life figures, great, great people to study. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what I enjoyed about the book. I mean, it, it really is. It, it, it's, it's a great case study in the complexity and nuances of, of colonial war and, and imperial policy. It almost reads like a, a fictional work in some way. Right. Yeah, um, as I was thinking about it, you know, the... the the truth is always much stranger than fiction, especially in, in this case. You know, your, your earlier scholarship, of course, and we've talked a little bit about this, is largely devoted to, you know, restoring British and American practices of irregular warfare, you know, petit guerre, as it was called, to their proper place in military thought and practice in the New World. How exactly does Nova Scotia fit into this? Um, basically, Nova Scotia, the, the situation, because the British do not send the, the resources, either in manpower or money, 
um, demands that Peggy Gare will reign supreme in Nova Scotia for essentially the first 45 years of the colony's existence as part of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the British don't have the tools on hand to properly incorporate either the Acadians or the um, Indians, and within the Indians there's the, the Abenakis and the Maliseet and the Micmacs. They don't have the resources to deal with that. So anytime there's a, a flashpoint of conflict, and there, there are several little points along the, the progression until we get to the Seven Years' War, which settles everything, yeah. um, there are several little flashpoints, and the only British option to deal with them is to engage in petty guerre against the Indians or the Acadians. Well, it's interesting, too, because you know how, you know, for the British, they had no problem at all in, in dealing with these Indians by bringing in other Indians, you know, in this case from the Mohawk Confederacy, right. as, you know, kind of, I guess like mercenaries to, to help pacify the island. Was this a new right. development? Pardon me? Was this a new development for the British to use the Mohawk like this? Well, the British... The British and the French have always were always looking for a way to uh, use Indian proxies to help them in their wars against either other Indians or Europeans. Right, um, but I'm talking about in terms of you know occupation policy or you know in, to to pacify an occupied population. Right. Yeah, that's. I think that's a pretty. I, I think it's a pretty daring and bold move to bring members of the Mohawk Confederacy. Or the Iroquois Confederacy, specifically the Mohawks, over to uh, Nova Scotia in the 17-teens to try to um, in place order on the colony. So, and as I mentioned in the book, the Acadians um, they were real comfortable with that. So, um, one of the one of the carrots that the British offered the Acadians um, was that okay, if you promise to behave, if you if if you make it clear that you might accept an oath of allegiance to us, um, we'll make sure we send those Mohawks back to New York. Hmm. Because the Acadians were perfectly okay with having the Micmac around, and many of the Acadians and the Micmac had intermarried, and uh, there was a large Metis population between uh, the, the Micmacs and the Acadians. So the Acadians had no problem at all with the Micmacs, but they had tremendous problems with the Mohawks. It strikes me such a daring policy. I mean, you know, it's not the only uh, chancy step that the British take you describe. And it makes me wonder if part of the problem that the British confront that caused them to to bring in the Mohawk and and, and other issues, if part of the problem isn't that there's just ambiguity and and uncertainty over who's responsible for governing the colony. Oh, exactly. The, The... The army officers of the the 40th Regiment that they send to Nova Scotia receive very little in the form of instructions and even less in the form of resources. So the lieutenant governor of the colony, because the the governor prefers to stay in England and send the lieutenant governor forward, who and the lieutenant governor is also the commander of the garrison at Annapolis Royal, he has to make all the decisions on his own. So you continually see this this progression where a, you know, this poor British army major or captain makes a decision, executes a decision, then reports back to England, and England, the, the, the authorities in England from the Board of Trade or the Admiralty or, 
or Whitehall or whatever it might be, writes back and says, oh, that was the wrong decision. You should not have done that. You know, that's the nature of part of being on this, why I called it the far reach of empire. I mean, they're, they're out there breaking new ground and having to make it up as they go along. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. You think there was any remedy to that, though? I mean, or was it just the nature of the beast in the 18th century? I just think it was the, the, the nature of the beast, and uh, the British really didn't know how to build an empire like they were trying to build in Nova Scotia. The, this empire that they had in um, in North America, you know, with Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and, and the Carolinas, and even the empire that they had in the Caribbean, those were primarily settlement or economic empires. This thing they're trying to do in Nova Scotia is a military conquest of both the European people, the Acadians, and the Indian population, and they're doing it. It's not like it's Ireland, just just a hop, skip, and a jump from England. It's on the other side of the world as far as they're concerned. And again, there's no money, no manpower to to make it happen until until the Seven Years' War. 1755, and then you see a huge influx of British regular troops, resources, money, and it's at that point that the British say, oh, we don't have to play the accommodation game anymore. Now we can just up and remove the Acadians, and that'll solve the Acadian problem. Right, and then I guess in the end, that's, that kind of speaks of, you know, just the lack of comfort as well in, in governing the French-speaking population for the British. Yeah, and it was it was really a problem for them because, you know, there's so much um, anti-Catholic sentiment in, in Great Britain. Then they supposedly conquer these people in 1710, and the first thing that Queen Anne says in her proclamation, well, one of the first things she says is, as you Acadians, if you take the oath of allegiance, you're allowed to keep your Catholic faith and keep all your property. Mm-hmm. So there's this huge anti-British, anti-Papist sentiment in England, and but out on the frontier, on the far reaches of the empire, it's okay that Catholics um, are allowed to practice Catholicism. They're allowed to hold property, and they're allowed to be subjects of the empire. That I mean, that's that just rocks many people's world. Oh yeah, and I'm sure it played very well in Massachusetts and other Congregationalist-based colonies too. Oh yeah, they they just they couldn't understand it, and they. And again, Massachusetts sees Nova Scotia as Massachusetts' rightful possession. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the interest in Massachusetts is as much to Nova Scotia as it is to Vermont, New Hampshire, um, out on the western frontier. Mm-hmm. So when the British, the British pretty much upset, you know, the established order by telling these Acadians, yeah, if you take the oath of allegiance, We'll welcome you into the empire. The problem is the Acadians never take the oath. They play a very dangerous game where they get close to doing it, but then they always come up with an excuse why they can't. Mm-hmm. Thus, by the time you get to 1755, after 45 years of having to deal with these people who won't be good subjects, the, the British Army and the Yankees who are in Nova Scotia come to the agreement, our best bet is just to deport these people. We'll just seize their land. Who do you think is the worst players in this, the Yankees or the British? Um, I would frankly have to say I think it's the Yankees. Um, 
I don't think the British understood all the nuances of what was happening in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the more interesting characters to come up in the study, I think, is John Gorham, who's a Yankee um, or, or a Massachusetts Ranger. So he's a he's a Indian fighter essentially. Mm-hmm. And he goes up to Nova Scotia to lead this organization called Gorham's Rangers. And he's continually wanting to expand the war from killing Indians to fighting Acadians. And time and time again, the British army officers who are in charge of the, uh, the, the administration, if you will, in Nova Scotia, they have to, they have to rein Gorham in. But by the time he, he dies in 1750, but his younger brother, who shares the same worldview, takes over his company. By the time the Seven Years' War is up and running in 1755, things are progressing so quickly and getting so out of control that they basically cut Gorham loose. Mm-hmm. So, um, really, the, the Yankees get their way in 1755. You know, let's turn back again to, you know, you, we mentioned him briefly earlier. That was Father Jean-Louis Le Loutre, the the French Acadian priest who was, you know, I guess you could call describe him fairly or unfairly as a, a uh, Acadian patriot, someone who devoted, right. devotes his life to restoring Acadian control of Nova Scotia. Isn't he, though, also partly responsible for this escalation? I mean, we, we, we've, we look at Gorham and we could, you know, say that the Yankees are, you know, they're, they're the harsher actors between them and the British, but... The Acadians kind of play a part in this too, though, don't they? Oh, very much so. I, I think Lelutra is, uh, that's why I call, uh, I write an entire chapter and I call it Father Lelutra's War. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of King George's War in 1748, um, the British and the French agree essentially that Nova Scotia is going to be a British possession. Um, they're the French really don't have any more designs, any more self-delusion that they're going to take Nova Scotia back from the French, uh, from the British. Mm-hmm. Father Lelouchra doesn't quite see it that way. And he says, well, the best thing we can do, um, and the most effective thing we can do, is we can rile up the Indians, essentially use the Indians as pawns, and wage this clandestine covert war against the British, and while we may not take Nova Scotia back, we'll make life absolutely, utterly miserable for the British in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. That sounds familiar. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and that's his plan. He's just going to make it as difficult and as ugly an existence for the British as he can. Um, and what's interesting is the Micmac aren't really interested in playing as Lelouch's pawns, mm-hmm. but in the end, he manages to convince them to do it, and that's what leads to the 1749 Scalping Proclamation. Right. So we're talking about the, the Micmac, you know, and of course there's the Maliseed as well. You, you mentioned, yeah. Do they have any real voice in this, or any 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 alternative? Well, very much so. Very much so. The, the Maliseeds um, in the 1720s they find a middle ground with the British, and they say, um, we will stake out a position of neutrality between you and the French, you being the British. Um, We don't want any part of your imperial wars. Stay away from us. 
stay out of our lands, um, trade with us, but we're not going to serve as proxies for either side. The Mi'kmaq are a little bit more closely tied to the French. Um, they tried to stake out a position of neutrality, but they receive a lot more pressure from the French, and particularly from Father Lubutra and the other Jesuits, to break that neutrality and join the French side. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, they chose poorly in joining the French side. Right. Right. Because the French left them left them out to dry at the end of the day. Right. Well, sadly, it seems to be the the case with so many other native native peoples in in North America with relation to the French, um, which kind of raises the question too. I mean, we, we've talked about the British as actors in acquiring Nova Scotia and in occupying it and making it part of their empire. We've talked about the Acadian response and the issues involving the various native peoples. What about the French response? Is there a response from Quebec? Very much so. Um, you know, the French, the French settled, quote-unquote, settled Nova Scotia um, in the early 17th century. Right. And they established this this colony out there on the peninsula of Nova Scotia. And this, this whole area, Acadia, is essentially Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Maine, as we would know it today. And the border between Massachusetts and, and, and Maine or Acadia is always pretty confusing. Um, what, what happens quickly, and what the, the Acadian historians have shown, and they've done a wonderful job doing it, is that the Acadians create their own separate identity. So they're French speakers and they're Catholics, mm-hmm. but they're not like the French Canadians of, say, the St. Lawrence River Valley. Mm-hmm. So they're the, they view themselves as this own as a, these as a unique people. So they don't see the need for themselves to join in the Franco-British conflict. They want to stake out a position of neutrality. Sure, that neutrality will lean towards the French because that's their linguistic and cultural and religious um, familiars, mm-hmm. but they're, they're not going to crawl into bed with the French. Um, and, and what that does is that causes the authorities both in Paris and in Quebec to continually try to draw them closer into the French fold. Right. And there's a lot of frustration amongst the French that the Acadians won't simply pick up arms and help them drive the British out of Nova Scotia. Well, of course, you know, they would look to the example of the British colonies where they would do it. Why wouldn't our own do it, of course? Right. And there, there's, not, there's not, like in Massachusetts, there's this militia tradition that we all know so much about, right? right. Everybody goes up one weekend a month and drills on Boston Common and, you know, shares and some rum punch and, you know, maybe they'll shoot off the cannon. There's nothing like that in Acadia. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one other point, too, I, I found myself as I, as I read the book thinking about was, as we get to the end game, and you described that during the guerrilla phase from 1755 to 1760, and, you know, the, the generation of relations in Nova Scotia, you know, we see that, as we've stated, the Anglo-Americans, and particularly the Yankees, playing a greater and greater role 
in overwhelming the Acadian and Indian rivals in the, um, in the province. You know, it kind of strikes me that it follows, in a way, the same historical narrative that we see with other British colonies in North America, where the English-speaking settlers do take greater control of their security away from the British. And in the end, it's they, as we've, you know, we've kind of alluded to this already, you know, they're imposing their peace, they're stating their claims, and the British are forced to go along or compelled to go along. Is, is that exactly. really the case here? Oh, I, I think that's I think that's the model. Um, if you look at my my first book, First Way of War, the the end chapters are essentially about American frontiersmen, whether they're in in Georgia or Alabama, or if they're in Indiana and Illinois, taking matters into their own hands and, like you said, imposing their peace. That's exactly what the Yankees did in Nova Scotia between 1755 and 1760. Um, they said, we will eliminate the native presence and we will seize these lands. What's interesting is, that, you know, you have the, the, the planter movement in Nova Scotia, which follows the end of the Seven Years' War. Um, and, and you have these people, these planters, who come up from New England and settle in Nova Scotia. And it looks like a peaceful, open, fairly easy settlement. Well, the reason it's that way is because these frontiersmen, just half a decade or a decade later, had removed the Indian, the French, the Acadian, the opposition presence from the colonies. It's the same thing that happened in Indiana and Illinois or in Mississippi and Alabama. The same process happening on different frontiers, and I believe that's what constitutes the first way of war um, before we develop a second way of war, which is a focus on a regular army that's going to fight in the War of 1812, mm -hmm. in the Mexican-American War, in the American Civil War. Right. Beforehand, it's a, it's a frontier experience. Right, and that sets the stage for the contest between the, the militia and the standing army advocates on, on either side of the divide. Right. You know, I, I guess it, you know, it is inescapable when we, we look at a, a recent book about irregular warfare. If we were to ask for ourselves if there's any possible analogies that we might, you know, draw in the current day from this earlier experience. Um, you know, I, I guess the first question is, do you think it's possible that there are analogies or... Is it rather a case where it's just a, a flawed question to begin with? We shouldn't be looking for any kind of comparison. Well, yeah, I mean, I understand that coin or counter-urgency is the, the current rage of the day, right? Yeah. Um, but I think it's a flawed question. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, everybody asks it. Um, That's <laughs> why I had to I, ask it. <laughs> I even asked it as I sat about, you know, as I, I first my first draft of the introduction to this book was essentially trying to make it fit. And it, it doesn't, um, because I think it's such a different world, and I think that there's no way that the American people would buy those kind of operations in Afghanistan or Iraq that the, the Anglo-Americans used in Nova Scotia. Right. I mean, it kind of harkens back or, or brings, if you're going to look for an analogy, kind of would harken back to 
ethnic cleansing and resettlement in the Balkans, if anything, which I right. find completely right. an egregious case to, to draw up to. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think the um, the American people are going to buy the uh, deportation of Kandahar. Yeah, mm. you know, I mean, even if Americans had the capability to do it, I don't think there's the, the political will to do it. There was no question about the political will to do it in Nova Scotia, in Halifax as they were sitting there in 1755. Mm-hmm. There was no question that they wanted to do it. It was just a question could they do it? And finally they could and they did. Right. Well, I mean, if we reject that connection which I think we should rightfully you know, we shouldn't rule out that there's other important lessons here from the study that that can help inform us, right? I mean, what other findings do you think from from this work should be pointed towards or, or deserve um, greater attention? I think the important part is the story of accommodation, the accommodation that the Acadians and the British meet. Um, you know, they they meet in this middle ground essentially from about 1710 to. 1755. There's 45 years there where, you know, there are minor periods where there's little flare-ups here and there, but on the whole, wiser heads on both sides prevail, and they find an accommodation, and they realize they don't need to essentially butcher each other. Mm-hmm. They, they, they can live in, in a tense peace, um, but it's still a peace. And... Um, the British seemed fairly happy with that until the, these European wars, the War of the Austrian Succession, which becomes King George's War mm-hmm. in the Seven Years' War, um, changes the whole geopolitical outlook. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, th- th- there is room. There is room for um, accommodation. Now, I don't know if you know. Harkening back to the question, you know, is there is there a model today? Is there a model in this for today? Um, I don't know if the Acadians and English and Yankees were all that different amongst themselves. I mean, you know, they're all still Europeans. They many of them can speak this, you know, each other's languages. There there are French Protestants, you know, Huguenot, all those all those sort of things. Is the cultural divide between the the Southwest Asian world and the American world so huge that we could never find an accommodation? I personally don't think so, mm-hmm. but some people do. Some people think we're engaged in this war against Islam. Well, as many people thought they were engaged in a war against popery in, you know, 1740, yet they still found an accommodation. True, very true. And you see accommodation at the height of the Crusades in the 12th century as well. Right, right. And it's just, um, but you know, you throw in a little, you throw in a little economics in there and you throw in, you know, people with strong, outgoing personalities and, um, you know, things can get, things can get confused. Sure. Well, you know, let's, you know, ask her, or I'll ask you, I mean, is, what happens in Nova Scotia a result of that strong personality stepping in, or is it a response to global pressures, or both? I think it's um, people who wanted to make a change 
people who had strong personalities, men like Charles Lawrence, who's the governor who orders the deportation of the Acadians, the Gorham brothers, William Shirley, the governor of Massachusetts, who's an arch-imperialist. Mm-hmm. Um, these men had these perspectives of Father Jean-Louis Lelouto, right? He, he wants to return Acadia to the Acadians or return it to a place where there's not the British, at least. These men all have these visions of things they want to do, um, and then these external pressures, King George's War, the Seven Years' War occurs, and the, the established order, the status quo gets gets messed up, if you will, gets mm-hmm. gets shaken up, and um, where there's where there's confusion, you know, the, the the visionaries will emerge. As I have this vision, let's go back. And what's interesting is none of them are really calling to go back to the golden ages. These are forward-looking guys. We might not like where they're looking to, but all of them are looking to a, a different place, a different world, and they're going to try to drive the train of events to make sure they realize their vision. You know, we're just about to wrap things up here, John, and when we, as, as you know if you've listened before, we do have a customary last question for our, uh, our authors. In which we ask, what's next? Uh, what are you planning on tackling next? Uh, next, uh, really, there's two projects. Um, as I was, I was telling my wife, I feel like I'm kind of a fish stuck in a gill net. I, I stuck my head through the net, and now I can't, I can't back out, and I can't get forward. Um, the, the next project is a biography of uh, Major Robert Rogers, probably the most famous irregular of the 18th century. Interesting. Um, and, and what I'm trying to show there is that Rogers wasn't this prototypical American frontiersman who later led to characters like Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett, but instead he was just an able and faithful and loyal subject of the British crown. And um, his whole career is this progression towards gaining a position of power and wealth and prestige and profit in the British Army, and he gets right to the cusp of attaining it, and then the American Revolution happens, and he decides he's going to side rightfully because he's a half-pay officer in the British Army with the British Army. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result, he is one of the losers of the revolution, if you will, and he just fades into obscurity. Mm. And then the uh, the next issue is um, on the hook to uh, to write an article for the um, 2012 special edition of the Journal of Military History on the War of 1812, the, the centennial version of the, the journal, if you will. And what they've asked me to do for that is discuss the again the frontier aspects of. Um, of 1812. The War of 1812 and how that fits into the American way of war and how we should memorialize the war and understand the war's place in our history. So um, our discussion earlier today here, Bob, about how you know what's happening in Nova Scotia is the same thing that's happening in Indiana and Illinois and Mississippi and Alabama fits nicely into that, great. I hope, at least. Well, that's great. John, I, I really look forward to reading both the article. Uh, I do get the journal, and I urge our readers to as well. Uh, but also the biography of Roger, Robert Rogers, I think it's going to be fascinating. The long overdue for for treatment. 
Thanks for taking the time with me today. No problem. Thanks for the uh, invitation, and um, I've had a great time, and um, I hope the, the, the listeners enjoy it and get a little something out of the uh, out of our cup. I'm sure they will. For everybody, this is your host, Bob Wintermute, thanking you for listening to our discussion with John Grenier at New Books in Military History. You've been listening to our interview with John Grenier about his book, The Far Reaches of Empire, War in Nova Scotia, 1710-1760. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Thank you for listening to New Books in Military History. Thank you.